People are yearning for information. Having the opportunity to encourage people and to educate people and inspire people. It's amazing to be able to say we'll carve out time to take care of ourselves. There's something for everyone. Now is the time that we bring you the virtual stage of our 12th Achieving Optimal Health Conference at Georgetown University. To experience this talk with all the videos, slides, and graphics, head over to the BBNR website where you can enjoy the entire day of archives of eight incredible speakers for just $29. Go to bbnrconsulting.us and click on store. One more time, visit our store at bbnrconsulting.us. Thanks for staying curious and for living your best life with us. How much do we love Kristen Kirkpatrick? A lot. She's not only an accomplished registered dietitian, but we consider her a very good friend. Mm -hmm. Kristen is working and continuing her education in a cutting-edge field at the prestigious Cleveland Clinic. We love hearing from Kristen because she teaches us that there's so much more to food than just trying to eat healthy. Today, Kristen's going to be talking about how to support our mental health and what we eat. So we have to stop and ask ourselves, are these comfort foods really bringing me comfort? Is this convenience food truly convenient? There are times I reach for things that probably aren't so good for me. So I guess by saying that, we just want to acknowledge that these are not always easy changes to put in place. They're just not. But that's one reason we love taking this day to help us reset our intentions. On that note, let me introduce and thank Kristen for joining us today. Hey, thanks, Doro and Trisha. It is such a pleasure to be here again at the Achieving Optimal Health Conference. I have so enjoyed all the years that I have been asked to speak here, and I'm really excited for this year because this year I'm talking about something that I have really noticed has become so important to so many of my patients at Cleveland Clinic throughout the past two years. So as you know, we have been living through a pandemic. Some people are saying we're coming out of it, whether you're coming out of it or not. A lot of my patients have still been experiencing some of the trauma of the pandemic. And so they really notice that there's a dietary principle that is actually helping them with coping with some of the stress and anxiety that perhaps they have experienced. So I'm going to talk to you today about the emerging field of nutritional psychiatry. This is a field that has been really in existence for about 10 years, but many people are not aware of it. There's actual certification programs in it. I'm actually going through one of those programs right now. And it's a really important aspect of overall health, because when we think about how we fuel and how we eat, we have to think about overall what does our chronic health conditions look like? What does our weight look like if that's something that's going to be incredibly important to us? And how do we achieve all of that? So what I'm going to do today is really go through some steps that I hope you can take home and really say, okay, I can do this today. I've really not been feeling great or I'm in therapy and I want something to enhance that. And so I want to give you those steps to really achieve that yourself. So I'm going to start with one of my favorite pictures that I found on iStock about six months ago. And since then, I have put it in every single one of my presentations. Obviously, you are virtually in front of me, not right in front of me. But I oftentimes will ask the people in the audience, what do you think when you see this picture? What's the first thought that comes into your mind? When I went to iStock, I put in healthy eating as my search. And this is the picture that popped up. 
So let me tell you what I think. And I've gotten so many different answers. Oh, she's having a smoothie and that's not really healthy. Or, oh, you know, her her plate should have some protein. But a lot of times people are missing what my overall goal is. And that is this. This picture is not realistic. And the reason it's not realistic is because the donut has addictive properties to it. The donut is one of those foods that is calling you in the middle of the night that perhaps we turn to to self-medicate when we're feeling down. We don't do that typically with healthy foods, yet there are healthy foods that help to boost mood as well. So there is something about this picture that is just completely disjointed. I don't think anyone is really happy and saying, hey, don't worry about it. I don't want that donut. I'm not even interested. If we look at real life, if we look at my patients, I guarantee you half the people that I counsel are thinking about the donut, even if they choose not to. So let me tell you what's more realistic picture. And this is one straight off my childhood from the 80s. And it's a little Lay's Devil with the tagline, you can't eat just one. And that is an accurate picture because you truly can't eat just one. There is something called hyperpalatability in foods. And it really is the reason why we can't stop eating the potato chips or the pretzels or the pizza, but we can stop eating the broccoli. There are areas in the brain that are really hard to recognize that we're full, really hard to send the signals that it's time to stop eating. And so we continue to eat these foods. I don't think I've seen this tagline because probably it would get a little bit of negative connotation in today's day and age. But I remember this when I was a kid and thinking to myself, man, that is right. You really can't eat just one. So we have to recognize that as we think through this presentation about how we are going to translate what I'm going to tell you today into real life. The first thing I want to focus on very high level is that we need to change the nutrition story. We have seen in surveys, and I'll show you a slide in a few minutes, over the past 18 months, that if we say it bluntly, consumers are sick and tired of the diet industry. They're sick and tired of hearing about diets, about weight loss, even if they choose a specific dietary pattern for the goals of weight loss. I want you to think of food not as good or bad, because that's really where we started many years ago. And it's really kind of screwed up our thinking a little bit and how we look at food. But think of it and know and have the recognition that there are certain foods that can help your mental health and certain foods that will actually inhibit good mental health as well. Your gut health has also been found to be just a huge factor in being able to manage all of this. And it's really been seen in some of these studies, and I'll show you some slides as well on that. So let's look at the survey I talked to you about. There is an organization called IFIC, and IFIC does an amazing job at looking at consumer surveys from year to year. I really think it's fascinating looking at in the past 18 months, how have consumers changed their perception? So as you can see from this slide, there's less common responses of what we have and top responses of what we have in the healthy food discussion. So when I tell someone, what does healthy food mean to you? I can get a different answer from 10 different people. And so what we've seen in the past, let's say 18 months, is that people are more looking now at nutrient density. They're less looking at things like, oh, if it's organic, it's healthy, because we know you can have an organic cookie and that cookie's okay. If you've seen my presentations before, you know I'm all about focusing on eating food, and that's something that comes from nature, is fed from nature, and will eventually rot. That's the definition that Michael Pollan has for it, and I still think it's the best one out there. And 10% of what's left is non-food. 
manufactured calories or things you know are not going to help mental health, things you know are not going to really help you overall. Right? It's okay to have the ice cream. It's okay to have that chocolate chip cookie. My point is I don't want you to have that organic chocolate chip cookie and think it's a good choice simply because it's organic. So as you can see from this survey, we do know that fiber, protein, things like that, very specific nutrients have been more in line with how consumers are looking at this concept of health and healthiness. So as I said in my introduction, today is all going to be about nutritional psychiatry or nutritional psychology. This was one of the greatest studies I think that I have seen since the emergence of this field, and it was in the Lancet Psychiatry, really looking at this perception of how do we look at our dietary intake and how that actually helps or hurts our mental health. I'm going to show you a slide in a few minutes. I actually work with a mental health and a behavioral health organization that deals with addiction on all levels, with trauma, and I work with them simply to change the food that they're giving to their patients and simply to present to their patients on how their dietary choices can actually enhance the therapy that they're getting either inpatient or outpatient. If we look at the relationship between diet, physical health, and mental health, this is from the British Medical Journal, but you can see here that it's not just one thing. Again, if you've seen me present before, I often say that when my patients come to me and say, well, I want to lose weight, so I'm going to do this diet and hopefully it works. We can't look at health or weight loss or any of those things within a vacuum. We have to understand that there are so many things intermixed with that. And this is what I presented on last year is all the things you're not thinking about that are hurting your ability to actually eat healthy. So as you can see, having good quality fats, I'll tell you specifically what that is, looking at the mental health benefit of that, looking at insulin sensitivity, looking at whether or not you're exercising. It is all mixed in. So even as you see this today and you see some of the tips that I'm going to give you, I want you to be aware that just changing one aspect of your diet is not going to be the solution. You have to look at all the different aspects of how those are things affecting you and how you can either achieve those or get around the barriers because we all have barriers. I do too. We all have barriers to healthy eating. I thought this was a great book and also a great quote, because when you think about food and mood, which is becoming so much more popular in mainstream media now, we often think about depression, we think about anxiety. But I had mentioned the word trauma when I started this presentation. And it's something I really have learned a lot about since working for this organization, The Meadows, and also since I've been reading more studies as I delve deeper into nutritional psychiatry. So you can see the quote that we have here and what I had said initially in my intro when I talked about how food is neither good or bad, how some food will help with mental health and some won't, and that our gut microbiota impacts every aspect of being able to manage those emotions through diet. So as you can see, trauma damages and disrupts the microbiome. We oftentimes don't look that deep or think that deep about how trauma, whether it's coming from years ago or it's recent, can actually impact the microbiome, how that actually impacts your overall mental health. This is an older study, but it remains my absolute favorite one, and it really does look at the core of gut microbiome. In this study, there were two sets of mice. One set of mice was totally chill. I mean, not a problem in the world. Live in the mouse dream. The other set was completely stressed out, high anxiety, very anxious, just really stressed out, okay? So what they did was the researchers took the feces of the stressed mice that has the microbes that we find in the microbiome, and they transplanted that into the non-stressed mice. 
So imagine what happened and where I'm going with this. The non-stressed mice became stressed simply from changing the microbiome. So my point in telling you this is that we know that there are certain differences that we see in the microbiome for people that are highly anxious, highly stressed, depressed, people that are overweight or obese. We've seen these changes too. People with certain chronic conditions, their gut microbiota is a little different from individuals that don't have those things. So I want you to think really strong here. How are you fueling? I've said this every year since I presented at this amazing conference, and you all have such amazing energy. So take that energy, really look at this and say, how am I fueling? Not for chronic conditions or not for weight. Those are important. Let's not take them off the table. But how am I fueling today in terms of my overall mental health? So number one, we're going to eat food. That's going to be the high level. If you do nothing but just eat food based on this definition, you're going to be so much better place than you were if you weren't eating a lot of food. As we saw in the past two years, especially since the pandemic arose, the increase in sales of snack foods and hyperpalatable foods, that bag of potato chips you just can't stop eating, has really gone up substantially. We are snacking more. We are turning to food to help emotion. We are also turning to alcohol more, and we have studies to show that. We also have studies to show how that actually impairs our immune system. And it doesn't support our immune system in such a way that we can avoid getting sick to begin with. I've given you examples in the past about food versus non-food. This is obviously an obvious one, but it's a great example of that hyperpalatability. So a potato isn't necessarily hyperpalatable. I mean, we can have a baked potato for dinner and feel really full and satisfied. And if we have the skin, we get all that great fiber. But the potato chips are very different. So that's the difference between that food and non-food option. I also will say that the blue zones, which I have mentioned in prior presentations, is also a great example of places where people are living longer, living better, and have better mental health. So the Blue Zones had a second book that was called Blue Zones Happiness, which looked at that aspect of nutritional psychiatry of how all these choices these people are making actually help their overall mental health. And these are some of the choices you can look at, as well as where the Blue Zones are as well. So as I said, I've mentioned this before, but I always like to go high level. I always like to say, hey, let's eat more food. Let's eat more like people in the Blue Zones ate, and we're going to be good. Whether or not you can get enough DHA and EPA that I'm going to recommend in a few minutes, if you're just eating food, your mental health will be better. We have plenty of studies to show this. Let's talk about a few more studies. So this was another large study, randomized controlled trial, and it looked at 16 of them. So this is a really strong assessment of different studies with over 45,000 participants. And what they found is that dietary interventions could significantly, when they use that word significance in research, it's a big deal. It means that the effect was really huge, significantly reduced depressive symptoms. Females tended to have a better result in this study. They tend to have a better result in most studies. I'm not sure why. There are some studies that just look at men. But when we look at men and women, females do result in uh, less depressive symptoms as well. We've also found that poor mental health, here's the chicken and the egg, is also tied typically with poor diet quality. And poor diet quality is sometimes tied to poor mental health. So again, if we look at that, again, chicken and the egg perspective, we can see that if we are already 
struggling with depression and anxiety, like many of the patients at the Meadows that I'm working with, we are more prone to be making poor dietary choices. So again, as I had said, having that recognition, knowing that that's something that we might be going through could be a step in the right direction to change some simple things, which I'm going to go over in a few minutes. This is the Fuel Well Pyramid that we created for our patients, for visitors and staff. And I just wanted to show it to you because of all the things I'll talk about, this pyramid is really outlines exactly based on the studies, based on evidence-based approaches here, what exactly helps to contribute to better overall mental health with the most important things at the bottom and still important, but you can have them more minimally at the top. So if anyone's interested in this, you guys can email me after. I'm happy to give you a copy of this. Let's start with our steps so we can make some sustainable change today and really look at how we can feel a little bit better. So number one, take baby steps. That's true for any kind of dietary intervention you're going to take. When you go in with two feet, you don't know what you're doing or it's overwhelming, you're less likely to stick with it. And as I've always said, the best diet out there is the one you can sustain long term. So let's keep that in mind as we look at this perspective. This is a study that looked at young adults. So why I'm putting this in the baby steps approach is that what it found is that when we looked at depressive symptoms in certain individuals, and then we gave them a three-week dietary intervention, so more of a Mediterranean diet approach, after that three-week intervention, their depressive symptoms, their scores went down. This was three weeks. That's nothing. So if you're overwhelmed with how long will it take me to start feeling better, know that there are studies showing that in that three-week perspective, you could possibly start feeling better. Your gut could change in that time. Brain chemistry, brain inflammation could change. And so all of that can contribute to better mental health. So that's time frame. You also don't need to do much to get that benefit as well. So this is 40,000 individuals eating just one extra portion of fruits and vegetables a day really had a huge impact on overall mental health. Now, typically, a serving of vegetables is about a handful. So if you think about it from that perspective, you don't have to have much. Add some more folate, add some more spinach, add some more cruciferous vegetables, add something to your diet if you feel you're not having enough to begin with. And I've kind of knocked you over the head with this over and over again, I know. But eating real food is something I cannot stress enough. And when you think about eating real food, and this is why I have this picture here, I want you to think about color. And I've talked about that in the past. Color is going to be one of the main determinants of getting the most phytochemicals, flavonoids, antioxidants. All of those things help to reduce overall inflammation in the brain. And as we reduce inflammation in the brain, we are more likely to see results with depression, anxiety, etc. Now, let me just stress that if you're someone who is working with a psychologist, a psychiatrist, or a therapist, even though this is a horrible pun I'm going to make, I always say that the nutritional intervention is like the little cherry on top of the sundae. Everything you're doing with that professional is going to be the main component, but adding in that nutritional intervention is going to make a difference. It's going to make you perhaps more successful in reaching the goals that you have set with your practitioner. All right, second is gonna be following that anti-inflammatory diet. So here's where we get back to that color. I think I've shown this in the past, and after I showed it at another conference, I just had a million people asking me for it. Even though this checklist is meant for kids, it is great for adults. So this comes from the Institute for Functional Medicine, and it really does go over what are the different colors. And as you can see, we have many. Let's not forget the whites and the tans. And how can I get that during the day? So I do use these with my kids. 
I have a six-year-old and a nine-year-old, and they don't love vegetables. Fruits, ah, some days are good, some days are bad, but vegetables is my challenge. So we utilize this color chart. We go to the grocery store and I tell them, hey, can you choose three or four colors from this chart? And when we get home, hey, what did you have on this chart today? Can we just talk about it briefly? So I'm not going to berate them about the fact that they didn't touch the broccoli on the plate, but they're not going to be able to knock that off in the chart. And, you know, bribery sometimes helps. So when they get all the colors in the chart for that week that I want them to get, there is a little treasure box at the end of it. So our treasure box as adults could be better mental health, can be a reduction of risk of chronic conditions. If we're looking at color, then we are looking at plants. And if we go back to those IFIC surveys that were done that I had shown you an example of, we do know that plant-based diets are soaring in popularity, and that's a good thing. What are some of the other components that we see in the evidence for better mental health? Omega-3 status, I've already talked a little bit about gut, and I'll go a little bit more into it vitamin D, folate, and then, of course, if we go in the negative, eliminating certain foods as well, junk foods and looking at sugar. So let's talk about omega-3 status. People ask me all the time, hey, just bottom line it for me. If I had to do one diet that's going to be the best diet for better mental health, what's it going to be? And I oftentimes will recommend the MIND diet, which is a combination of Mediterranean and DASH. I'll talk about that in a few minutes, but I want to start with this trial that was done a few years ago. Looking at the comparison, there was two main trials looking at omega-3 supplementation with the Mediterranean approach, the Helamed trial and the SMILES trial. So when we look at this comparison of what these individuals did and we compare them with a social group in terms of being able to reduce depression scores, as you can see, the dietary intervention was incredibly significant. Just having that added approach of getting more DHA and EPA, those are the marine-based forms of omega-3 fatty acids, really did make a huge difference in being able to reduce those depressive symptoms. So again, that was one study. And just to show you the breakdown of what that study had, if you're trying to mimic this again in your diet, it was very similar to the MIND diet. So whole grain consumption, very high whole grain consumption, in my opinion, five to eight servings per day. And we're going to get folate, other B vitamins, and whole grain consumption. Lots of vegetables, fruits. They did go low fat dairy. So I know some of my patients have a debate on that with me. They're like, hey, I'm just going to do full fat because it keeps me fuller longer. But again, if we just look at the studies, we just look at mental health, low fat seems to be really effective. Lean sources of protein, including lean sources of meat. So that was allowed in this one, olive oil, eggs, etc. This is another study, again, just to give you some reference if you wanted to go back after this presentation and look at some more ideas of where you can look at this outcome. But then, again, this was the Mediterranean approach yet again and looking at depressive symptoms. So Mediterranean approach is very similar to the slide I just showed you. Lots of whole grains, leafy green vegetables, healthy fats, lean proteins, lots of olive oil. One of the things I've been presenting on a lot lately is working with individuals on how to choose olive oil. It's kind of like the wild, wild west when you go to the grocery store. How do I know what to look for? What kind of container should I get? What's a good quality one? So I've been doing a lot of media and things like that about how to find good olive oil. And why is olive oil so important? Because we see really significant advances with one to three tablespoons of olive oil every day in overall mental health. So again, you can see these fats are really speaking to our brain, our brain chemistry, the brain inflammation, and how that then results in a better option for us to simply be happier, right? If we look at that. 
Vitamin D is another one. So again, women tended to be better in vitamin D studies. So one of the things I tell my patients all the time, they're like, okay, how many international units of vitamin D should I take? So work with your physician, get tested first if possible, know what your number is. So once you know your number, then you can determine how much vitamin D you should be taking. If you don't know your number, then start to think geographically. Okay, if I'm in Northeast Ohio, for example, six months of the year, then those are the six months I'm taking that vitamin D. The main source of vitamin D is UV rays of the sun. That's why a supplement is always a better option than food. Food's kind of a lousy source of it. But let's say you go down to Florida for six months out of the year. You probably don't need that vitamin D while you're there because the UV rays are so strong. We don't want anyone being out in the sun without sunscreen for long periods of time. So obviously sunscreen will block that UV, will block that vitamin D. But some studies show that just 20 minutes could help to really boost those amounts. From a food perspective, which I don't recommend, a lot of times I'll tell my patients, you know what, you could eat salmon until you're blue in the face. You're probably not going to get your levels up to where you need it. The supplement is probably going to be the best bet. But fatty fish, eggs, cod liver oil, some dairy products, and mushrooms will be your best sources of vitamin D. And again, lots of associations with vitamin D and depression. Some associations with anxiety as well. Here's another example of a study looking at women. So women with moderate to severe depression. Substantial, substantial. Let's think about how impactful and powerful these words are from these studies that we're pulling here. Substantial improvement in the symptoms of depressions after they receive treatment for vitamin D deficiency. I will say in this particular study, they did have a really high megadose of vitamin D. Obviously, in a real life setting, we're not going to go that route, or we probably won't unless we're in a clinical trial ourselves. But let's think about getting our vitamin D up. Let's think about it in general if we're not thinking about it. And let's think about what's the best way to do that. I'm a fan of food. Most dietitians are. Most dietitians will tell you that you can get most nutrients with food. But I just showed you one where a supplement's going to be a better option. The other place where we have a better option is looking at people that have an MTHFR deficiency. I've noticed in this conference in the past few years that there's been a lot of the experts and the experts here are just incredible. A lot of our experts are talking about MTHFR deficiency and that is because 48% of the population has one. So what is MTHFR? If you haven't heard it in another presentation that you're watching today, I will tell you that MTHFR is like the chaperone that the body needs. It's a methyl group, it's a gene. So some people have genotyping where they don't have that methyl group, they're lacking it. And if they don't have it, they can't get folate to the brain or they can't break it down and metabolize it. So another place where a supplement might be warranted might be what we call a methylfolate. So I told you, if you eat salmon until your eyes pop out, is your D level gonna go up too much? Eh, maybe a little bit, but it's not gonna break the needle. And the same is true for folate. If you have an MTHFR deficiency, if you're missing the chaperone to take that, that B vitamin into the brain, you probably aren't gonna get it into the brain, even if you eat so much folate. So again, how do you determine this? Speak with your health practitioner. See if you can get some sort of genetic testing to determine if you have a methyl deficiency. Again, almost 50% of people do. And then you can go on a methylfolate. Now, it's becoming so common that a lot of the patients that I work with, they just want to go straight to the methylfolate. Oh, I don't want to do the genetic testing. I just don't want to do it. I'm just going to go methylfolate. So again, every practitioner is different. Some of the ones that I've worked with with Cleveland Clinic will put people on a low dose. 
see what their symptoms are, if they're depression or anxiety, or a lot of people will say they're brain fog. A lot of people cite brain fog that they're having, and then they go on methylated folate, and that brain fog goes away. So there's some really amazing approaches that can happen with that as well. Limit foods with addictive properties. So I've talked about this a lot, and here's where I'm going to get a little negative. But the reason I'm saying limit foods with addictive properties is that every food that we have with addictive property also happens to be a food that we know contributes to worsening mental health. You can see a picture in front of you, sugar in anything, sugar-sweetened beverages, the donut that I showed you, that white bread that you see in the burger. And we also know high amounts of red meat and high amounts of processed red meat can also contribute to worsening mental health as well. So again, you have to look at what's going to be best for you and what makes the most sense. Do you want to just add some more plants to your diet or do you want to say, you know what, I'm not there yet. I'm really overwhelmed with this. I'm just going to have fast food less than I typically do already. So it depends on which route you want to take. But this is another quote that I took from one of the studies that I think hopefully motivates and encourages everyone to think about reducing our consumption of some of these foods. Fat, sodium, sugar, and other flavorful additives appear to produce cravings much like illicit drugs. That's a pretty strong statement that this individual made. But what we know is that some of these foods hijack the same brain circuits that drugs do as well. And so that's why this is one of the things that I've really been focusing on is if someone is in treatment for alcohol, drug addiction, opioid addiction, whatever it is, that they have something in their brain where they are more likely to be addicted to some of these foods as well. And we all are prone to this. So that dietary intervention can really make a huge difference as well. I like the word that this study used as well, so I just kind of took this out from the study and put it here, the hijacking, the same cells and nerve connections, so that hijacking of those areas in the brain where we can see this. Sugar also offers the hallmarks of addiction, binging, withdrawal, and craving. And so we eat the sugar or the refined carbohydrate, we crave it. Think to that donut, to that unrealistic picture I started this presentation with. It's got the addictive properties. Dopamine increases. Insulin increases, all of those things increase and you feel pretty good. You've solved what you wanted to solve. You didn't feel good, you had the donut. Oh, now we feel good, right? But then your blood sugar drops, dopamine drops, everything drops, and then you feel bad. And you either need to get back to good by having more of the donuts, or you just feel awful and you're going to choose something else. So that's why it's really this sugar addiction cycle. It's not limited, as I had said in this, some of these studies, to just men or women or just Americans. It's not limited to that at all. If you can see this study here, 2002 is a little bit of an older study, but I think it's so important to put here that people that have high sugar in their diets are more likely to have major depression, and it didn't matter where they came from. So this is universal. This is global. If we have too much sugar, refined carbohydrates, anything that starts that cycle, we are going to be a lot more prone to worsening mental health. I want to end today with something I kind of started with, which was talking about gut microbiota. If we think about all the things that can help our overall gut microbiota, and there are many, we can think of probiotics, prebiotics. We could talk for 30 minutes just on those supplements alone, how to choose one. Do you need one? All of those things. But if we look at the overall aspect and high level of what has the greatest impact on microbial diversity and biodiversity, it is having variety in your diet getting plenty of fiber, prebiotics, of probiotics, getting that diversity. And the reason I say that is if you're watching this and saying, oh, you know what? I eat kale every day. I'm good, 
right? Kale's great. It's going to help you with your gut microbiome, but you're missing all those other plants. So maybe spruce it up a little bit, maybe get some variety, and that will help with that overall biodiversity because we do know that's the greatest determinant. We also know that if we look at other factors, oversanitation, antibiotics, how you were born, all of those other things can also impact your gut microbiome as well. And there are certain things we can't control. So agriculture, we often can't control. So again, if you're able to, and if it's important to you, look at things like the Dirty Dozen, look at where you should get organic versus non-organic, really delve into that if you want to look specifically for that microbiome. We also know that probiotics are important, but prebiotics are too. They just don't get all the press and media that the probiotics do. Prebiotics are non-digestible fibers. You can find them in bananas. You can find them in mushrooms, Jerusalem artichoke, leeks, a lot of the allium family foods. Okay, so prebiotics are really important. And what I say is that they often help probiotics do their job. So again, let's get out of the vacuum of doing one thing, taking one pill and expecting that our health will benefit from it. Let's look at all the aspects of what we can do. And these are just some other factors as well. Um, one of the last things I want to mention is the importance of gut microbiota. And if you happen to be on any type of medication that could impact microbiota. So 95% of the body serotonin is found in the bowels. That's where our microbe are, right? So if we think of our intestinal tract, everything like that. Antidepressant medications that are selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors increase serotonin levels, and that could actually impact the microbiome in a negative way. So I just want you to think about that if you are someone who is working with a professional, and that's why you're watching this, because you have this interest, perhaps think about maybe going on a probiotic route while you are taking that kind of medication. And of course, talk with your physician before anything is changed to any kind of dietary pattern as well. It was such an honor to speak with all of you today. As I say every year, and I think this is my fifth or sixth year presenting at this conference, my goal is always for you to walk away with one thing, right? I have about 25 minutes to throw a lot of information at you. But if you walk away today and say, I'm going to increase my fiber, I am going to follow more of that Mediterranean approach. Find one thing that you can do today. We can all do one thing. Find that, find that why, find that benefit and feel better. If you feel better, you're going to feel better. So thank you. Thank you, Doro and Trisha, for allowing me this honor and privilege yet again. I can't wait to see you guys next year as well. Thank you, Kristen. As always, I'm feeling motivated and prepared to make some healthier choices. And it's really just one day at a time. Yep, that's right. Truly, Kristen, that was so helpful. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us on HealthGig. We loved having you with us. We hope you'll tune in again next week. In the meantime, be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast and follow us on healthgigpod.com. I'm Trisha. And I'm Doro. Be well. To experience this talk with all the videos, slides, and graphics, visit our store at bbnrconsulting.us. Thanks for staying curious and for living your best life with us. <laughs>